Today we come to the end of our Seeing Beyond 2020 series, and uh, we've kind of taken a journey as it relates to the corrected sight that we saw some weeks ago, talking about the lens of faith and how it's impossible to please God, but one way we can, and and the only way that we can is through faith, and we need to look through the lens of faith at the issues of life. And then we looked at this whole idea of hyperopia, uh, which is living courageously in difficulty, and then myopia, uh, which is short-sightedness and not seeing the big picture. We took a couple weeks to look at that. And today, what I want us to look at is something that uh, I've entitled Blurred Vision, and it's basically the whole idea of anxiety. And I think that many of us in this room have definitely dealt with anxiety over this last year. It's one of those things when we look at the headlines and we see all the things out there in our world, especially in 2020, many of us saw things that possibly horrified us. Many of us saw things that we thought we'd never see. Uh, But the fact is, that is what 2020 brought us. You think about COVID-19, the death and the sickness the isolation due to quarantines, uh, major disruptions in career and life in general, mental illness, stress, and its anxiety has been heightened. We also saw our nation on edge with a racial divide that seemed to deepen, a political divide that obviously is very deep at this time, and many are concerned about the direction of our country. And then we saw all the bad news, the headlines, uh, the coverage, uh, all the headlines seemed to be so negative. The bottom line, I think many of us would agree that 2020 was overwhelming, hard to process, lonely, and fearful. And 2021 has definitely not started off uh, better than than 2020, uh, especially in our community. We're seeing the COVID numbers continue to rise and and uh, we're considered in one of the red zones. And, and, and I tell you, it, I think it's really taken its toll. It's one of those things that we thought it would be over soon, and it's just kind of mushroomed uh, as it's come through. Counselors, mental health counselors, cannot meet the coming demand that's coming at them. Psychotic drug sales are through the roof. The Billy Graham Prayer Ministry has seen spikes in, in its call for prayer and, and fear amid, amid fears of uncertainty. Even the CDC is putting out these uh, things about how to deal with anxiety associated with COVID. They're putting out things like high blood pressure, feelings of fear, anger, sadness, worry, or frustration, changes in appetite, energy uh, desires and interest, difficulty concentrating and making decisions, Difficulty sleeping, physical reactions such as headache, body pain, stomach problems, and skin rashes. Worsening of chronic health problems has come as a result of this. Worsening, worsening of mental health conditions, uh, which many of us have been touched by many of those things. Maybe some have never been touched by illness, has dealt with something during this year. Increased use of tobacco, alcohol, and other uh, substances. And then the CDC's come out also with healthy ways to cope with anxiety concerning COVID. Take breaks from watching, reading, or listening to news stories, including those on news media, on social media. Kind of interesting that they would put that in there. Uh, It's good to be informed, but hearing about the pandemic 
uh, pandemic constantly can be upsetting. Consider limiting news to just a couple of times a day and disconnect you from phone, TV, and internet. Take care of your body. Try to eat healthy, well-balanced meals. Exercise regularly. Get plenty of sleep. Get vaccinated for a COVID-19 vaccine. Do other activities you enjoy. Uh, and then this is interesting. Connect with others. I think they took that from us, actually. But anyway... Connect with others. Talk, talk about your feelings to one another. And then connect with your community, especially faith-based organizations. It's interesting that all these things are out there. And many of the things that are being promoted are really what the Bible addresses and what the church even says uh, when it comes to these matters, especially as it relates to anxiety. So what does the Bible say about this thing called mental illness as it relates to Anxiety. Look at that uh, at your outline. Look at the introduction. From the pages of God's Word, we discovered that we are called to not only live a life of faith and courage, but also a life of direction and purpose, and which in turn will lead to a life of satisfaction and fulfillment. That's what we've been looking over the last several weeks. However, there are times when we fo- when our when we focus. There are times when we lose focus due to the stressors of life. It is then that our Vision becomes blurred with anxiety as seen in the life of the prophet Elijah. If you will, turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. As you turn, listen to this. In Philippians 4, 6, it says, We are commanded to be anxious for nothing. Let me give you a paraphrase of that. Don't be stressed out about things. Don't worry about things. Now, you may say, well, great day. I mean, people are, uh, we're living in difficult days, and, and, and everything that you've just said would cause anxiety and stress, and uh, how can that be in a time like this? Well, go back to the first century. When this was written, the church was under heavy persecution. Day to day, they dealt with uncertainty of the fact that they placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They were becoming a community of Christians. Many were losing their jobs as a result. Many were losing their influence in the community. Some were even dying for the faith at this time. Talking about days of uncertainty. And we see that that was not only true of the first century, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament, especially when it comes to the prophets who were out there declaring the words of God and in the face of of, of Baal worship and all the things that were associated with it. So in the Bible, there's many things that we can learn as it relates to mental illness. So look on your outline, what is anxiety? What, What actually is it? Well, from the Greek language, it carries the idea of being distracted with life, life's issues. In the Latin language, it carries the idea of being choked or strangled with life issues. How many of you can relate to that and see that? That's kind of the way we see it playing out. But anxiety creates a churning within us. Life becomes overwhelming and overbearing. It steals or chokes out everything that means the most to us. Peace, joy, courage, and even the presence of God. In 1 Kings chapter 19, we read Elijah's classic case of anxiety. Now, I want you to think about this man. Elijah was considered the greatest and most powerful prophet who ever lived. 
Matter of fact, when you go back and you study the Old Testament, uh, you, you'll hear this whole idea of the writings of, of Moses and the prophets such as, as Elijah. He was one who, who rose amongst those who were considered prophets. And there were many great prophets in the Old Testament. But Elijah was one of those that not only appears in the Old Testament, he appears in the New Testament in the Mount of Transfiguration, if you study that, where Jesus goes up on the mountain. But not only that, he's going to appear in the book of Revelation in the end time prophecies. This is a man who was not only used in his day, he was used in the day in the past and also in the days to come. He healed the sick, he raised the dead, he called down fire from heaven. He was considered a man of great courage, yet we find this little snippet of his life as he deals with the pressures of the day and the anxiety and how it manifested itself in him. How many of you kind of find that comforting? That someone that great that God endorses is someone who's probably, who has dealt with maybe what we're probably dealing with today. So how did anxiety manifest itself in Elijah? Look on your outline. First of all, we see that this whole idea of anxiety is a painful uneasiness due to an impending or perceived fear. You go to the story of Elijah. Just before what we're getting ready to read, Elijah goes up to Mount Carmel. He's literally there. He's, he's basically been assigned there by God himself to go up on Mount Carmel and Mount Carmel, if uh, some of you have been to the Holy Land, it's, a, it's an amazing uh, view from Mount Carmel. You can stand on Mount Carmel and look over the valley of Megiddo, where Armageddon, the whole idea of Armageddon. You can literally stand there and overlook the battlefield that's going to happen in the end times. And there on Mount Carmel, you'll, have, you'll see that, that 450 Baal priests or prophets gather together, and we have this showdown between God's man Elijah and the 450 Baal prophets, and they build two altars, and the goal is to see which God is, is, is the one that should be worshipped in Israel. And the bell prophets are there, and, and, and they're, they're asking for their God to intervene and, and, and basically burn, consume the, 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 what's there as a sacrifice on the altar. And, 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 and they get up there, and they're trying their best to get the attention of their gods. They're cutting themselves. They're doing all these crazy things. And Elijah's over in the corner, and, and he's kind of making fun of him. He said, do you think your God may be asleep? He can't hear you? I mean, he's saying all kinds of stuff. Think you might be on a break? <laughs> and then all of a sudden, there's nothing here but over here where Elijah's altar is set up. The altar is consumed. Not only that, it's consumed, not only in its bare meaning there, but also they brought in water to water it all down. And, and, and when the fires came from the heavens to demonstrate the power of God, everything was consumed, not just the sacrifice, the stones and everything there. And we have this major showdown. And, and I don't know about you, but if I were Elijah, I'd probably be thinking pretty big of, uh, of who I am and how God used me at that moment. I don't know about you, but that's not, we read, that's not what we read next. We read that Jezebel is now, he's got her kind of wired up. And she's not happy about what just took place. How many of you know anybody named Jezebel? Anybody? You know, that's a reason for that, right? It's because this one was just pure evil. But what I want you to notice is, I want you to look at chapter 19. Look at verse 1. 
And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he executed, I forgot to tell you this, he goes down and executes all 140, uh, 450 Baal prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow at this time. Elijah, I'm coming for you, and tomorrow at this time, you're going to be dead like the rest of those other prophets. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. He literally takes a run. Now, you got to understand, he's up in the northern parts there. Uh, uh, of, 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 of really where is, is, is the northern part of Palestine. He literally runs almost off the map when you begin to look at Palestine. And, and he's there and he's running. He's on the run. But it doesn't end there. He, he not only has an un, a painful uneasiness due to an impending or perceived fear. Second of all, look at what's going on. There's a mental, emotional, and spiritual strangulation. There's something else that takes over in him. Something that I think many of us would not expect after what we just read in the chapters before. Look at verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough. Now the Lord take my life for I'm no better than my father's. What are we reading here in verse 4? We're reading about a man who's exhausted. He's ready to die. He's clearly had enough. He's in the midst of a pity party. He's comparing himself to others, and the only thing he sees out there is failure. Can any of you relate to any of this? That's where he finds himself. Would you call that mental, emotional, and spiritual strangulation? You know, really, when you think about it, he's really kind of not even making any sense because if he really wanted to die, where could he go? He could present himself to Jezebel, right? She would have gladly taken care of that for him. But he's clearly not in his right frame of, uh, of thinking. There's something going on. Now, now, let me clue you in on something. When we begin to read the Bible, we don't just read about heroes and all the great stories that they've done. How many of you are thankful that God allows the other stuff in there too? Why is that? Because we all deal with the things that they deal with. When you begin to read carefully and read between the lines, you're going to find out that Jonah had some mental illness. You're going to find out King David definitely had some mental illness. Some of the Psalms that he writes, he's speaking of mental illness. You'll see that Solomon, when he writes the book of Ecclesiastes and and Proverbs, has dealt with his share of mental illness. Paul, many of us think, oh man, there's no one greater than than Paul besides Jesus when it comes to those who've walked the face of the earth. Do you realize that you can find snapshots of Paul talking about mental illness as he writes to the Corinthian church? His own mental illness, his own dealings. Many of these great people that we see in Scripture have dealt dealt with mental illness. And Elijah, boy, it's glaring here in this text. Think of this. The leading cause of death in the U.S. for those aged 10 to 24 is suicide. 
Is our, is our society plagued with this? Yes. In the last year, the numbers have spiked when it comes to suicide. It's not just death by COVID. It's death by suicide in the midst of all this. Elijah seemed to, when you look at what he's saying here, he seemed to compare himself with others for when he said, I am no better than my fathers. I want you to think about that. If comparisons were hard back in the ancient world, how difficult must it be in this selfie generation that we live in? Where we're always constantly comparing ourselves to what comes our way. And, and, and that's kind of where Elijah was. He, he, he had enough. He, he couldn't deal with what was right there in front of him. He was beginning to compare himself with other people, which is always a big mistake. Next, what are the effects of anxiety? I want you to skip down to verse 10. Now, verse 10, if you, if you read this for what you, for what you find here, what you're going to find here sounds like it's been very rehearsed. Elijah's getting ready to share his heart. God is asking him a question. He's getting ready to share his heart. And it's almost like this is something that's been rehearsed and it's playing over and over in his mind. How many of you, when anxiety and stress comes your way, you have your go-to uh, uh, language when, of what you're thinking? You begin to think and you begin to see it play out in your mind over and over again. How many of you are guilty of that? Same thing that's happening here in verse 10. Look what happens. So he said... I've been very zealous. First of all, God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 10. So he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord of hosts. He's basically saying, God, I just want you to know I've been working out here for you. I've been going, I've been burning the candle at both ends. I put everything I've gotten into this. I put myself physically, emotionally, spiritually in any way that I could pour myself into what your work is all about. I've been doing that. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, tore down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And here it is. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Does, not, does that not sound rehearsed? Does, not, does that not sound like something that is being played over and over and over in his mind? And when you think about the anxiety that we deal with and some of the mental illnesses that we deal with, many times it's, it's that message that comes in over and over in our mind. Maybe it's what we're thinking about ourselves, what other people are thinking about us. Maybe even what God is not thinking about us or is thinking about us. And all these things begin to play out in our minds. When you begin to break down verse 10, there's several things that you'll see as, as, as this whole idea of, of anxiety. First of all, what does anxiety do? Look on your outline. It siphons our energy and joy, making us irrational rather than enlightened. What you're reading here in verse 10, I think you're reading someone who's having a breakdown. You ever had a mental breakdown? You, you ever just lost it? And, and Elijah... It's having a breakdown. It's like his whole world is coming, is closing in on him. It's like everything is just happening. He's worked his heart out. He's running for his life. He should have been enlightened as a prophet. But right now, he's not seeing anything correctly. And it's just sucking the, the energy out of him, the joy out of him. He's having all these irrational thoughts 
irrational thoughts. Now, how do we know they're irrational? Because we're getting ready to read here in a little bit, God's getting ready to correct him. Okay? They're definitely irrational thoughts. How many of you, when anxiety hits your heart, how many of you have those same type of thoughts, those irrational thoughts? You begin to think everybody's against you. You, you begin to think no one has ever been in the situation that I'm currently in. And, and all those things run rampant in our hearts. Another effect of anxiety, it twists our worries around our heart, destroying peace. When anxiety grips our heart, peace is far from us. Look at verse 10 again. So he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. With the sword. He's literally thinking, I'm next. Once they get me, they've got us all. They've got us all. Now, how did he get to the, in this situation? How can a man go from the spiritual high he must have had when God used him and the way that he used him on, on Mount Carmel, how does a person sink that low so quickly? Well, first of all, has that not ever happened to you? I've been there. I can say I have dealt with this. Not that I've called down fire anytime lately, but I've definitely had a mountaintop experience. How many of you? You felt like you were on top of the mountain. You felt like you were closer to God than you've ever been. You felt him using you in a certain way, or maybe man, just life is just great right now. It's obvious he's blessing my life, and it all seems to come crashing down. And really, for most of us, if we're honest, there really sometimes isn't a whole lot that's really changed. It's just all of a sudden these thoughts begin to take over. We become exhausted. We start running down. And for many of us, let me tell you what really happens. The flesh begins to take over. Let me give you something here in Romans 8, 5, and 6. So listen to these verses. Those who live according to the flesh. Now, when he says according to the flesh, he's talking about their own strength. They're living in the world of comparisons. They're living in the world of where everything is success and failure. It says this. They have their mind set on, on what the flesh desires, but those who live in the spirit have their mind set on those things which are, that the spirit desires. This mind governed by the flesh leads to death. Literally, what comes from that? Exhaustion, worry, hopelessness, discouragement. But the mind governed by the Spirit finds life and peace. Now think about that. If, we begin, if we're completely honest with ourselves, when it comes to peace and joy that's within us, the reason it's not there, to be honest with you, it's, it's because of what we're doing. It's because we are choosing to live contrary to what God has desired for us by living in the Spirit. And by the way, when, it really, when you truly have joy and peace and the life that He intends, it really doesn't matter what kind of circumstances you're living in. They should not be affected if, if you're living in the Spirit. What do you think about that? But yet we find Elijah. I mean, he, he's in a mess. Next... The effects of anxiety, it chokes our ability to, to, to discern what is true. To discern what is true. 
So he said, uh, verse 10, I've been very zealous, Lord. I've been working my heart out, uh, uh, the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. I'm the only one left. I'm the only one who's ever been in this situation. I'm all by myself. He probably could carry these thoughts a little further. No one cares, God. God, I'm not even sure you care. (laughs) And here I am. Now think about this. The most powerful enemy you face in life won't necessarily come from the outside. It will come from the inside. Listen to this. It will be the story or lie that you tell yourself about yourself, about others, about God. You see the messages I find myself in when it comes to a lot of this idea of what mental illness can produce are literally the the messages that I believe about myself that are untrue, messages I may believe about God that may be untrue, or the fact that so many other people have it so much better than me, and I make these comparisons, and I'm jumping to these conclusions, when we really don't know anything about that person, and all of a sudden, we cannot discern truth anymore. You, You see, when we begin to buy into lies, did you know that many times the world and others will affirm what we're believing. It happens all the time. Next, what are the effects of anxiety? It heightens our fears and strangles our faith. I want you to look at the end of verse 10. He says, I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. This is a man who's very afraid. A man just days prior was out there calling down fire from heaven and, and God was just showing off basically through this man. And it was an amazing time. But he's lost sight of all faith because of fear. Think about what we've learned about fear, I mean, about faith over these last several weeks. Faith is total confidence that God will do what he says he'll do. Faith is a total abandonment to the will and ways of God. Faith says, God, I don't understand what you're up to, but I trust you. Faith says, even when I don't understand, I know you and I trust you. He's lost sight of every bit of this. Elijah, at this point, has totally abandoned his faith. Have you ever been there? Think about it. Great man of God, a prophet. There's not hardly a time where the Old Testament's mentioned in the New Testament where his name's not mentioned. Another great man shows up in the New Testament. His name is John the Baptist. And many say, oh man, this, this man comes from the spirit of Elijah. This man's amazing. This, this guy totally abandoned faith. Have you ever been there? That's where he finds himself. So how does anxiety manifest itself in our lives? Let me tell you some ways. These are ways that I've seen it manifested in my own life. And some of these have been pretty recent for me. And I guarantee you've been there too. First of all, we become confused. 
It goes back to what we learned a while ago. We, sometimes we don't know truth from the lie. Sometimes there's just deception that surrounds us. We get to that point where we think no one cares, including God. Ever been there? But we do. We become confused, disillusioned. It leads to us being despondent. We become distracted. We not only become confused, we become distracted from the purposes of God, from the big picture of what our life should look like. We enter into what I've called in the last couple of weeks the survival mode. We're not looking at our lives as being directional. We're not looking at our lives as being uh, purposeful and fulfilling. We, We just enter into survival mode. We're just trying to keep up. We lose sight of what's really important and what God may be up to. Thirdly, we become overwhelmed. How many of you have been so overwhelmed that little things overwhelm you? Things that you thought would never bother you or things that you thought, man, this is just second nature. I can do this without even thinking. All of a sudden, you're just overwhelmed from every angle of life. Some people say that's a classic case of burnout. But I definitely believe it's one of these things where anxiety just literally blinds you and just literally strangles and chokes out any energy or any motivation that you once had. Next, we become desperate. Desperate. Let me give you a definition between desperation and longing. And to me, these are two words that are very important that we should get our minds around. Desperation means desperate recklessness. It's that desperate recklessness. Longing is an earnest desire. Now, you may say, why are you filling us in on that? What's that all about? How many of you, um, this past year, developed a measure of desperation when it came to looking at our country? Were you there? You mean I'm the only one? Desperation got a hold of my heart. Desperation for where our country may be headed. Desperation because it's just hard to watch. Desperation because you wonder if your grandchildren and children will live in a country like yours. Desperation because you see that evil is out there. Common sense seems to be drifting away. Deception appears to be everywhere. How many of you are just so encouraged right now? We find ourselves there. Let me tell you why I say there's a difference between desperation and longing. We as followers of Jesus should not live our lives in desperation. Do you realize that? The only time we should have a desperation is when we go before God in prayer and we're pleading our heart. But the people around us should not characterize true followers of Jesus as as a life of desperation. To me, that's a bad testimony. And I entered that for a while this past year. And I came through, the, uh, through much of it, and I, I was despondent, I was discouraged, I was frustrated, I was angry. 
But what set it off was this feeling of desperation. You see, I'm convinced that we as followers of Jesus Christ, there shouldn't be a desperation to our lives, but there should be a longing. And there's a little difference in that idea of longing. Longing is an earnest desire to see God move in our country, to see that it move in the direction of his will and his ways as, as instructed in his word. A longing to see that. There may be grief associated with it, but never desperation. And I was convicted over this this past year, that I shouldn't be characterized, I shouldn't present myself as a life of desperation. You know why? Because God is in control. But I should have a longing for the things that he has a desire for. Next, we become angered or cynical. How many of you right now are more cynical right now than you think you've ever been in your life? Let's just be honest. Let's raise our hand. Yeah, a lot of us. It's like I've said before, we don't know who to trust anymore. We don't even know who to listen to anymore. We're sitting there, and we're, we're, there's confusion, and, there's, and then the headlines, and then we look at all the different restrictions and inconveniences, and, and, and then we, we, I mean, they're surrounding us, and, and we, many of us have become very cynical. That should not define a follower of Jesus either. But it's part of the fruit of anxiety. You say, well, how do you know that? Because I see it here in Elijah. I see it in my own life. It's the fruit of anxiety. None of these characteristics that I've just mentioned should describe a follower of Jesus. I want to challenge you as you listen to a sermon like this and we look at Elijah and we look at the challenges from God's word, especially as it associates with what Jesus said and his ideas of what anxiety can do and how we shouldn't have that in our lives. I want, I want you to evaluate what is causing you anxiety in your life. Is it confusion? Is it distraction? Is it the fact you're overwhelmed? Is it desperation? Is it the fact that you're angered and frustrated? I don't think these are characteristics that should come from a follower of Jesus. I think we need to look at those issues in our lives. Next, how does God deal with our anxiety? Have you ever seen God work in your life before? Hopefully you have. And what we're getting ready to see is exactly how God works in the life of Elijah. And what he's attempting to do, he's trying to bring him to a place of restoration. And I don't know about you, but this past year, I could have used some restoration. And I've slowly seen God do some of these things in my own heart. And there's things that I've had to do and things that he's revealed to me that, that, that need to change, even in how I live my life and who I listen to and what I do. But let's look at how God dealt with him. First of all, what did God do? He met his basic needs and sustained him through his difficulty. Look at verse 5. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked and there, was, was his, uh, there by his head was a cake baked on coals and, and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. 
And the angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him, arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? That's what led in the verse 10. Now, the thing that I want you to see is that God understands the frailties of our bodies. He understands the complexities of our bodies and how we can and how we struggle with the physical aspects of life and the emotional aspects of life and the spiritual aspects of life. He understands those things. It's obvious he understands those things because of what he does here for Elijah. Notice what takes place in the verses we just read. He slept. Then he fed him. He slept again. He fed him. Even gave him a little exercise. He he moved him about 50 miles down the road. He also connected with him through conversation. And then Mount Horeb, let me tell you a little bit about this place. He literally took him on a mountain retreat to Mount Sinai because that's actually the mountain he went to. Does that ring a bell, Mount Sinai? That's where a mighty move of God happened for the nation of Israel through Moses. He carried him back, gave him a little mountain retreat. How many of you could use a mountain retreat right now? Yeah. No mask. (laughs) Just get away from it all. And that's what we see. Took care of his basic needs. Number two, he showed him who who, who was truly in control. Look at verse 11. Then he said, God told him, He's there in the cave. Go out and stand on the mountain before God, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great, great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rock pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after that earthquake was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, and we're getting ready to read what comes next. But before we get there, let me show you something. Here's what I think had happened. Could, could these things that God put before him, but yet he was not in them, could that have been what was at the center of Elijah's heart? What you think about it? What, what, what God has done here in describing is ruin. He's describing chaos. He's describing all these different things, and, and maybe he's helping Elijah to identify with what's actually in his heart. How many of you, when anxiety's in your heart, everything's in turmoil. Everything is misplaced. Everything just seems, I mean, the calamity of it all. And, and some people believe that possibly what's going on here is that God is basically revealing to him the condition of where he finds his heart. But it could be also that while God didn't speak through these things, it appears he used them to remind Elijah that he was still in control. How many of you need to be reminded of that at times? He's still in control. Next, he dealt with him tenderly. If you look at verse 12, we see all the things God was not in. But then after the fire, he was in a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard of it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. 
Now, let me just say this, and I don't know about your experiences with God, but the great moments with God, I think many of us would agree, would agree are the tender moments with God. It's when we calm our hearts and we hear from him. There's a psalm out there, Psalm 4610. God says this, be still and know that I'm God. He's not just talking about being still physically. He's talking about calming your heart. He's talking about calming your emotions, calming everything that's strangling you. Let the anxiety be removed. Come before him to receive for those tender moments. It's when we calm our hearts that we hear from God. Not when we're overwhelmed, distracted, desperate, fearful, and cynical. Next, how does God deal with our anxiety? He allowed him to express himself. In verse 13, the, the end of verse 13, suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? You know this is the second time God's asked the same question, right? Second time. And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel has forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. The exact same thing he says in verse 10. Now we know it's a rehearsed thing that's going, uh, the thoughts that are going over and over in the mind of Elijah. Think about it. How many of you can relate to that? It's the same message, the same thing you're believing. And half of what he's even talking about is irrational, and the other half is untrue. And he's sitting there, and he, all these things are shaping what Elijah is feeling. But here's what we need to know about what God's doing here. He's asking him a question to converse about it, to talk about the situation, to talk it out. How many of you have ever talked out your issues before God? How many of you know what it's like to talk about issues and after you've talked about it, you, you kind of feel better about it because you've talked about it. You, you've let it out. You've, you've put the, the proper phrases to, to what you're feeling and you're, you're putting it out there. Now, at times it may be right, wrong, or whatever you want to call it, and God's not sitting there judging him right this moment. He, but, but what God is doing, he's asking the question for Elijah to understand where he is, even though he's in the wrong frame of mind, and God's going to bring him to the right frame of mind. Did you know that that's what most of our prayer life is about in the first place? Bringing us from the wrong frame of mind to the right frame of mind. How many of you notice that about prayer? Boy, you get, in, you get in your prayer closet, you get before God, and all of a sudden you think you got it all figured out, you begin to present it to God. Sometimes we come out, we're like, well, totally messed up. And that appears to be what we have here. Next, how does God deal with our anxiety? Well, for Elijah, you put him back to work. Verse 15, then the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshia, as king over Israel. He basically is putting him back to work. 
You see, inactivity and focus on oneself breeds discouragement. How many many of you know that? I've met people who've been discouraged for years. Something came into their life that just totally just just blindsided them. They worked themselves maybe into some kind of burnout. They, I mean, they are just emotionally stressed. I mean, every, everything in their life just has been strangled out. No peace, no joy. It's just taking its toll. What does, Elijah, what does God tell Elijah? To? He's, it's time to get back to work. It's, it's time for you to find your purpose again. It's time to do what you've been called to do. It's time to get back out there. God renewed Elijah's sense of purpose. What did he do next? Well, he put someone in his life. Look at verse 16 again. He says, the second, the midway there. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Maholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Now, this is the one that's going to come and take your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu, will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha, will kill. He's basically bringing someone in to his life to walk with him, to help him. Something else that goes together with anxiety and discouragement is loneliness. Someone has said that Leaders suffer from great deals of loneliness. I, I remember um, uh, many years ago when I was called to be a, a lead pastor here. Um, it's amazing how close, I mean, I was an associate before that, but it's amazing how, how close I was and, uh, and didn't understand the full range of what that calling would be to be the senior pastor and that kind of thing. And, and I'll be honest with you, it, it was a very lonely place for a very long time. Very lonely Because you didn't really, it was just hard to get your mind around what God was calling you to and how it relates to others and that kind of thing. And then finally I realized I I can't continue to exist this way. I got to, God bring people into my life. Help me to draw from other people. And that's what he's doing here. He put someone in his life. Next, he fact checked him. He reality tested his perceptions. Look at verse 18. Yet I have reserved. Now, now think about what Elijah said, Elijah said earlier. What did he say? I'm the only one left. It's just me. But he fact checks him. How many of you are familiar with the term? It's what everybody's using now. Aren't you impressed it made it to the outline? Yeah, I am. I tell you. Uh, anyway, but, but he fact checked him. And he says, yet... I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. You need to understand there's more going on here. I'm, I'm here. I'm working. Anyone who feels discouraged will have his or her view of things distorted by emotion. And that's what many of you are dealing with when it comes to your anxiety. Everything's distorted. Let facts shape your feelings rather than letting your feelings distort the facts. So here's the application. These days require us to live by faith purposely, courageously, and directionally while overcoming the tenets that create anxiety. And I think everyone else would admit at some point this past year, or maybe even now, we've dealt with it. 
On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being well-adjusted, how well are you dealing with the stressors that lead to your anxiety? Maybe some of you would say, I'm a zero right now. I'm a one. I'm a five. Well, how do we move it to to the place I think God wants you to be based on what we're reading in Elijah? What's it going to take to move you from two or five to ten? What's happening there? What, what have we uncovered in this story? What will it take? Look at not. What will it take to move you forward, to move you to the life God intends you to have? Jesus said this, seek first the kingdom of God. You know what that means? Seek first his causes and his righteousness, which means his ways, and all these things will be added unto you. That does not describe a life of strangulation. It's a life of blessing. It's a life where needs are being met. It's a life of joy and peace that he wants to bring into your life. So would you pray with me? Father, we just come to you right now. And Lord, I think every one of us would admit to saying that this past year has been tough. And Father, I just pray right now that as we turn our direction to the future, as we turn our direction to walking away from this whole idea of strangulation when it comes to anxiety, Father, help us to quiet our hearts before us, before you. Lord, help us to move from desperation to longing, from fear to faith, from distraction to direction, from discouragement to encouragement, from being overwhelmed to peace from being cynical to joyful. Father, help us to find you in what we need in these days. Lord, help us to understand that you are the one who will sustain us. You are the one who's ultimately in control. We thank you for this story of this great man, Elijah, Elijah, Father. And Lord, I think we all see ourselves in what he was dealing with. And we thank you for the tenderness in which you dealt with him. We ask for the same thing in Jesus' name. Amen.